Well, we're in First Thessalonians 3, but we won't be there for very long. So, uh, but we're going to start there. It's interesting. I, a uh, Monday through Friday, one of the first things I do after I do my devotional time with the Lord is I listen to my uh, daily briefing by Dr. Al Mohler. It comes Monday through Friday. It's a little 20 minute. Uh, he's a president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, and he does a 20 minute uh, audio that you can listen to each day, Monday through Friday. Uh, where he's talking about current trends and issues in America and in the world and, and what, how Christians should respond or what we should think. It's very interesting. But he pointed out on Friday that uh, some, there's a group of people in our country that are very unhappy. People who um, support and promote assisted suicide. Um, because a new study was released by the New England Journal of Medicine this last week that said that uh, the main reason people want to... Um, take their own lives or um, the main reason people want to have the right to practice assisted suicide is not because of physical pain, but because of existential distress. Well, what does that mean? Existential distress. Uh, basically, what that means is, and this is the New England Journal of Medicine, not a Christian periodical. Uh, they're saying that people become distressed when they can't control their own lives, uh, their lives don't turn out as they thought they would. Uh, and the end is is getting near for some. Or they gave the example of a marathon runner who was struck by a disease and now he's bedridden. Uh, and he was so overcome mentally and emotionally at this huge change in his life that he wanted to be allowed legally to take his own life because he didn't want to live now the way that he was living. Uh, and so the New England Journal of Medicine has upset a lot of people uh, because they're saying basically people want to choose assisted suicide because they're completely distressed about not being able to determine how they can end their own lives. Uh, and it comes back again, doesn't it, to this theme in our culture and the world today. Uh, and uh, if either uh, you've been living under a rock and if you haven't been living under a rock, then you understand that uh, we're in the midst of a very severe uh, sexual revolution in our country. Uh, and behind that just is the same issue that is behind assisted suicide. Uh, the desire to be self-determined, uh, the desire to be autonomous, uh, the desire to choose whomever I want to marry, the desire to define marriage however I want. Uh, even the the autonomous decision, I should be free to choose my own gender. Uh, it's really behind all of these things today is this desire to be autonomous and self-determined, uh, even uh, to the point, And it is a lie. It is a lie of the world that tells us uh, that our value is determined by what we can find inside of ourselves. Uh, you know, and people get distressed when uh, they find that those answers and those and the contentment and the satisfaction and the uh, things that they thought they wanted, then they don't get the results. They thought, well, if I could just have this, if I could just have my own way in this, then I'm going to be better. And they realize that's not true. Uh, it really comes down, doesn't it, to our sinful human hearts. We want to determine 
uh, our own path. We want to be autonomous. Uh, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just me. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> That's a famous uh, line. Okay. It's not you. It's me, Jessica. So. But look at First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Very interesting here because Paul, and once again, if uh, you really need to have the outline that's prepared for you, uh, there's a whole series of reflection questions. Uh, if you get bored during this sermon, you can work on those reflection questions, I guess. So, uh, But there's some there. Uh, those are to be used for your own devotional time during the week. Those are to be used for your CPR group discussion. Uh, but... Uh, ponder these questions as we go through the scriptures this morning. I'm not going to take the time to read all these, uh, but I did like what Alva J. McLean wrote. You see it at the top of your uh, sermon outline uh, in his commentary on the book of Romans. One of the very best I've ever read. Uh, and Dr. McLean was the very first president of Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake. Uh, and he said hindrances are not always an evidence that our purposes are wrong. Isn't that interesting? Hindrances are not always an evidence that our purposes are wrong. We'll see what he means by that in a little bit. Uh, basically, what he's saying is we think we've found something that's God's will. We pursue it. Then there's hindrances. There's obstacles. And we find out it's hard. And so we just chuck it and say, oh, this must not be God's will because it's not easy. Uh, if it was God's will, then the path would be easy. Uh, and I know we chuckle and I see some smiles. You're thinking, well, I don't think that. Uh, oh, yes, you do. So do I. Uh, we all think that in the reality of living day to day when rubber meets the road, uh, you know, we say, well, I know this is God's will for me, but this is really hard. So maybe this isn't God's will for me. Uh, but we'll see in a moment. But in verse 11 of First Thessalonians, chapter three. Isn't it interesting? Paul is going to clearly state that he does not believe that autonomy and self-determination is a godly attribute. He's going, to state, he's going to state his belief that utter and total dependence upon God and upon Christ is the godly attribute. Because remember, we've already saw, if you glance over at chapter 2, verse 18... He says, for I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet who hindered us in verse 18 of chapter two? I'm going to see if you're looking. Satan said we tried to come to you, but I know there was satanic hindrance. And it's interesting in other places in the scripture, like in the book of Acts, Paul says we wanted to go into this certain area, but the Holy Spirit prevented us from coming. Isn't that interesting? Then there are times, like in Thessaloniki, when an angry crowd of evil people were out for blood and Paul had to flee for his life. So he has these plans. He has these goals. He knows they're approved by God because God had already told Paul, you're going to be my, uh, my servant or my missionary uh, to the Gentiles. So he knows he's doing God's will, and yet he's got Satan working against him. Uh, he's got evil people working against him. And sometimes he even has the Holy Spirit preventing him from doing something. So really, Paul should have just sat down on the road, pulled out a hanky and wiped his eyes and just said, forget him. I chuck this. It's too hard. God called me to be this missionary to the Gentiles. But every time I turn around, there's an obstacle. There's a hindrance. So this can't be God's will. No, that wasn't Paul's. Attitude at all. 
the key word in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Direct is going to be the key word that we want to focus on this morning. Paul's asking that God the Father and God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ guide and direct him back to them. Remember, he had to flee. And by the way, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag early because it's so interesting. Paul never returned to Thessaloniki. He never got back there again. He says again and again, he wants to come back. He wants to come back. There's work to be done. I need to help you. I want to come back. I know that God's okay with me coming back, but I'm being hindered every turn. And he was never allowed by the sovereignty of God to return to Thessalonica. I think that's really interesting. Uh, sort of like a, the air kind of went out of the room, right? We kind of think, oh, it'd be a fantastic finish. At the end, Paul comes back to Thessaloniki, you know, riding on a white horse. Yeah, no, uh, no, none of that. He didn't get to go back. Was it any less? Was he any less in God's will because his plans didn't come to fruition? No, not at all. Not at all. He says it is interesting. Take note. This is a prayer. Verses 11, 12, and 13 are a prayer. And in verse 10 kind of hints us to that fact. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. And the word may in verse 11 points us to the fact that that is a prayer. That's a, a word of prayer. Now may, he's praying to God, he's praying to Christ. May they direct our way back to you. And then he goes on. We're not going to cover 12 and 13 today. Then he says a prayer for them, praying for their spiritual growth, praying for their love for one another, praying that they would show that love, not just to Christians, but to unbelievers as well, praying that their faith would be established, uh, that their lives would be holy uh, as they wait for Jesus to return. Now, he prays in the name of the Father and in the name of Jesus. It's interesting here because. He's doing a great switch here. Usually, he says he prays in the name of the Father. He says, our Father, and that's emphasizing a personal relationship. And he also prays to Jesus, our Lord. And the word Lord is usually used to refer to a ruler or authority, uh, rulership. And usually we think, well, we think of God the Father as the ruler. And we think of having a personal relationship with Jesus, the Son. But Paul switches the normal use here, and he does it for good reason. He points out that God is the one that was pursuing an intimate, gracious, loving relationship. And it was Jesus as Lord who had ascended to the throne in heaven. So he's pointing out that, yes, God is the ruler, but God also desires a personal relationship. Yes, Jesus Christ is one that we have a personal relationship with. But let us not forget that he, too, is ruler. He, too, sits on a throne. He has authority. He has power. Something else that's happening here. If you look on your outlines, page two, number five. I'm just kind of following this today. When he says. Now may God, now may our God and Father himself, really a better reading, and you'll see that at the top of page two, right under where it says be cool. I'll explain that in a moment. A better literal reading of verse 11 is now may himself, our God and Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how it reads. 
Now may himself, the word himself comes first in the original reading. Now may himself, our God and Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, direct our way to you. Well, what is he doing? Well, the word himself here is a singular pronoun. And the word direct is a singular verb. So may he, may he himself, singular, direct, singular. And yet, what do we see? We see the Father and the Son, a plural subject. I know you're thinking, oh boy, he's talking about grammar and verbs and all this. What does that mean? Here's what Paul's doing. He's using the father and the son, plural personhood, but he's using a singular pronoun and a singular verb. He's talking about the Trinity. He's telling us as we're reading this, he's equating Jesus with God. He's declaring the deity of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is still just under attack as much today as ever before. The deity of Christ to say that Jesus is God. So that's what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is God, but he's saying much more than that. He's underscoring our relationship with the Trinity. And if we keep it in the context, what's the context? The context is Paul's desire to get back to Thessalonica, to continue his ministry with them, and that he's being hindered in a lot of different ways from continuing his ministry. And then he points out his relationship with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and we can say the Spirit. By implication. He's equating the father and the son. He's saying they're both equally sovereign deity. And here's where it comes to bear on our context this morning. That the father and the son, and we can say the spirit from other places in scripture, all three persons of the triune Godhead perfectly agree in all matters. Isn't that interesting? In Paul's situation, in your situation, whatever it may be, whatever plans, whatever goals, whatever desires that you have for God, that are pleasing to God, that are divinely sanctioned, that all three persons of the Godhead are in complete agreement with what God's will should be. Isn't that interesting? So Paul had the confidence... To know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all on his side. All working on his behalf to accomplish their will in his life. Even though there were these hindrances happening, he could be encouraged. Now let's look at this word more closely direct. Now may himself, our God and Father, and Jesus our Lord, direct our way back to you. What does that mean? This is an important word. He's being hindered. There are obstacles. That word direct literally means to lay out a straight, smooth path with all obstacles out of the way. So Paul is praying to the triune Godhead and asking them to do something that he knew only God could do. God, you've put me in a position, you put me in a situation where I am helpless to do anything about it. These are my desires. These are my plans. This is what I would like to happen. And I believe that it's pleasing to you. But the solution or the result or the end game is out of my control. So if this is going to happen, if I'm going to return to Thessalonica, then Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, this is something only you can do. Isn't that interesting? Paul is in a position of utter helplessness to see his goals and dreams realized. 
It's something that only God can do. And I think he was right where God wanted him. In a position of utter dependence. So that he might not be tempted to take credit or take glory for something great that was going to happen. To make clear how this turned out. To make clear and to be sure that God receives all the glory. Because this is going to be something that only God could do. So Paul prays that God and that Jesus would divinely open the way for him to return to the Thessalonians. But it was his desire. It was Paul's desire only if it was the will of God. Isn't that interesting? Paul constantly worked hard to submit his will, his plans, his goals to the will of the Father and to the will of Christ. In other words, if he knew that it wasn't approved by God, he didn't want anything to do with it. He knew if he was going to go back, that that was something only God could do. Now, let's go to Psalm 37 because Paul's being hindered. He's being hindered by Satan. He's being hindered. There are obstacles by evildoers. They're the ones that ran him out of Thessalonica. He knows his plans are pleasing to God because God has appointed him for such a ministry. He knows all this. And so he says, God, if you want me there, then you're going to have to make it happen. He's displaying an attitude of what we would call meekness. What we would call meekness. That's the very definition of meekness. Uh, he's, con- he's practicing a very calm a frame of mind, a soothing of his troubled soul, submitting it to God's will. That's the very definition of meekness. It's interesting. Psalm 37, you'll see it on your outline. And the last couple words down there at the bottom of page two were cut off. So I'll tell you uh, what he's saying there. When it comes to Psalm 37, it's right to say that it is an exposition of the third beatitude from Matthew 5, which is what? Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. So Psalm 37 is really an explanation of Matthew 5, 5. Even though it was written a thousand years before Jesus began his public ministry, it unfolds the character of the meek or trusting person in the face of the prosperity of the wicked. That's what's cut off from your page in the face of the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 37, which we read quite a bit of it earlier today is describing the quiet spirit of one who trusts in God and does not fret because of evil men or hindrances or obstacles or unrealized plans or goals. And this is going to get even better uh, because when you dig into what the psalmist is really saying here and he opens Psalm 37, 1, do not fret. And then in verse 7, we see it again, do not fret. In verse 8, we see it again, do not fret. Uh, That's clearly the theme, right? Page 3, letter C on your outlines. That's clearly the theme. The theme is clearly do not fret. Do not fret. I just keep saying that because I like that word. We don't use that word enough, fret. Fret. That'd be a great name for a pet to remind us not to worry. Here, fret. Here, boy. Seriously, that'd be a great reminder. I'm not a dog person. 
I love dogs, but they're a lot of work. What does it mean when he says, do not fret, when the psalmist says, don't fret? Paul didn't fret. Paul didn't worry. Paul wasn't getting anxious because he was being hindered from what he wanted to do. He applied meekness, which we'll develop that more as we go through here. Do not fret to fret or do not fret means literally don't get heated or don't get all worked up. Or basically he's saying, be cool. I like that. So now we have a biblical principle in the Hebrew language. Be cool. So we can say that and know that we're being spiritual. Calm down, dude. Be cool. God's God's in control. That's what the psalmist is saying. Sometimes, especially remember the context of Psalm 37 is the believer in God looks at the wicked who is prospering and all these wonderful good things are happening. And the believer gets all worked up, gets all heated up, starts to worry and get anxious and fret. And the psalmist says in a few moments, even gets angry, gets angry at God, gets angry at others. Why? Why does someone who hate? Why? Why do people who hate God get to have so many good things happen to him all the time? The psalmist says, I'm tired of seeing the wicked prosper. I'm tired of being hindered by people who hate God. I'm trying to do your work, Paul could have said. I'm trying to do your work, dear Lord. But I have all this opposition from people who hate you. Why don't you do something about it? You know, why don't you intervene and lower the boom and knock these people out of the way so I can go back to Thessalonica? But God says to us, and he says it to us through the psalmist, And through Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, don't worry about it. Don't get all heated up. Don't get hot under the collar. Don't get all worked up because the wicked are prospering or because the plans you have are getting hindered or there are obstacles. Be cool about it. Relax. Don't react is really what he's saying. Relax, don't react. We have to learn to be meek in the face of such obstacles. Well, what is meekness? And by the way, do not fret. That's really an Old Testament way of saying practice meekness. Practice meekness. Well, what does meekness mean? Interesting word. It is the opposite of being out of control. It is the opposite of being out of control. It is supreme self-control that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, in the face of wickedness or in the face of obstacles when I'm trying to do things for the Lord, I don't panic. I don't get anxious. I calm myself down. It's it's using the self-control, Galatians chapter 5, that comes from the Holy Spirit, and I talk myself down and I calm myself. I remind myself that Christ is on the throne. God is in heaven. I don't need to panic. I don't need to get all worked up. I don't need to get angry. I need to practice the self-control that will enable me by the spirit to respond to the situation with a calm, quiet spirit. And why? Because I'm trusting in God. Because he will direct. 
have a little note on your outline. You're not going to like it, but don't scribble it out in my presence. You'll hurt my feelings. Notice that Psalm 37, Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 are all commands. This is very countercultural. Do not worry. Do not fret. Do not be anxious. Those are commands. Meaning that having self-control to not worry is a command of God to us. It is something that he expects from us and something that he enables us to do. Now, here's the part you're really not going to like. Fretting, worry and anxiety are sinful choices that we make as Christians. We have to practice. We have to develop. We have to nurture trust in God. And in Christ by the Spirit. And by the way, you know this already. It doesn't come naturally. To not panic, to not worry, to not be anxious. It does not come naturally to our worrying hearts. It's something that has to be practiced. That's why Paul told the Philippians. You know, you'll have the peace of God within your heart if you practice these things. I think sometimes as Christians, we don't want to do the work. You have to do the work. I think that's a popular saying now. I don't know. You have got to do the work. Page three, letter D. We're flying right along here. How can we do this then? Because we're all fretters by nature, not fritters, though that sounds good. We are all apple fretters by nature. How can we be cool in the face of. Of the prosperity of the wicked and in the face of hindrances and obstacles to our godly plans and goals. Well, Psalm 37 verses 1 through 11, which we've already read, gives us a two pronged strategy. And these are from James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on the Psalms, which, of course, I would highly recommend. We do two things. The psalmist tells us to look up and the psalmist tells us to look ahead. Letter A is look up, and then on page 4, letter B is look ahead. And we'll get there again in a moment. Look what Boyce said. When I think you're going to get angry at me, I put the quote in there from the author so that you can get angry at him. But on page 3, underneath where it says letter A, look up, Psalm 37, 1 through 8. Boyce says the most important answer When dealing with these types of situations, when we're tempted to worry and have anxiety and fret, especially because the wicked are prospering or our plans are hindered or there are obstacles. The most important answer is to get our eyes off the wicked and even off ourselves and onto the Lord. More than that, we are to trust him and commit our way to him. Isn't that wonderful in a painful kind of way? Isn't that wonderful? When we're tempted to worry and fret and have anxiety, the best thing we can do is to get our eyes off of the wicked, off of the problem and off of ourselves and onto the Lord. And in a moment, we'll see. That's why he says, delight yourself in verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in him. Put your eyes on him. The psalmist tells us we're to do five things. Verse three, he tells us that we must trust in the Lord. We do five things. What is looking up? What does it mean to take our eyes off of ourselves, take our eyes off of the wicked and put our eyes on the Lord? It means five things out of this psalm. Trust in the Lord. Trust his faith. 
making a personal commitment to God. He has committed himself to us, so we must commit ourselves to him. That means resolving within our hearts, within our minds, that we will be committed to the Lord. It's a decision that we make, a conscious decision that we make. It's deeper than just saying, oh, I have faith. That word trust is the word commit. We can use the word really covenant there. Covenant in the Lord. Covenant in the Lord. That's a serious commitment. That's a binding agreement. In verse 3, what does he say? He says, trust in the Lord and what? And do good. Everybody look at that. Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Faith, trust in the Lord, waiting on the Lord, being meek, having a calm, quiet spirit as I wait on the Lord doesn't mean that I am passive. As I wait, as I trust, I am active. Trust in the Lord and do good. As I wait upon the Lord, I continue to obey him. I continue to serve him. My trust is seen in the way that I respond to the situation. Because sometimes when I'm overcome with anxiety or worry or I'm fretting, the temptation is to what? Shut down. Is to shut down. But my trust is such a commitment to the Lord Such a commitment that I believe in what he is doing. He's doing it his way in his time. I'm not going to fret. I'm not going to worry. I'm going to continue in my walk with him as he does whatever it is that he's doing. Secondly, verse four, it says, delight yourself in the Lord. This is what we do when it appears the wicked are prospering or our goals, our plans for the Lord are Experiencing obstacles and hindrances. We delight ourselves in the Lord. He's saying that we know God so well that he himself is our highest delight. That nothing else thrills us. We have no greater desire than the person of God, than the person of Christ. We understand that he is merciful, gracious, loving, kind, forgiving. He's utterly delightful. It is fascinating in a sad way to me that so many Christians, truly born again, I believe, be in heaven, Christians who don't delight in the Lord because they don't really know the Lord. That may sound a little strange. We know the Lord, but we don't know the Lord. A lot of Christians know a lot of things about the Lord. Uh, They know a lot of truth about the Lord. They know a lot of things about salvation and the Bible and they minister, but they don't really know the Lord intimately in a personal relationship because they have not delighted in him. He has not captured their heart. He has not captured their attention. That's why the scriptures say things like taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, in, the, in your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy. Your word, O Lord, is sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Thirdly, he says in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do it. 
Now, this is interesting on your outlines. I've written the definition or the meaning of that word commit because it's so interesting. When he says commit your way to the Lord, that word commit means, listen closely, to roll one's way onto God. Roll on, I guess we'd say. I was going to say roll on big mama, but I don't think that's I think that's from a song or something. I don't know. Or rolling on the river. That's better. I don't know. It means to roll one's way onto God. I guess some of us could literally uh, do that. Uh, Roll one's way onto God. It means, if you have your outlines, I'm reading right off of it on top of page four. It means to dislodge a burden from one's shoulders and place it upon God. Isn't that wonderful? We sang about that. You know, we don't even, sometimes we don't coordinate the music with the message. And this morning we were singing that very thing uh, uh, during the offertory. What we forfeit because we don't take it to the Lord in prayer. Even as God's children, we try to carry around our own burdens, our own worries, our own struggles. And the psalmist says, commit your way to the Lord. In other words, take whatever it is that's burdening you and weighing you down and causing you to fret and just let it roll off of yourself and take it and place it upon God. Because he says, I want to take it from you. Didn't the Apostle Peter say the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 7? Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And Jesus even said, remember, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's no need to worry because God is equal to the task of managing anything that can possibly come into our lives. Verse seven, he says, be still. Verse seven, rest in the Lord. It's literally the words be still in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man that carries out his weak schemes, wicked schemes. As I've noted on your outlines, it's important to remember that when it says be still before the Lord, this is going beyond simply sitting quietly. He's not saying just sit there quietly in front of the Lord. The key here is that phrase before the Lord, because it means waiting patiently for him. Mere stillness is not enough. The psalmist says what is needed is a quiet waiting upon God, waiting however long it takes. Waiting can sometimes be a very long process. And so I keep my spirit quiet. This is the very definition of meekness. I keep my frame of mind calm because I'm trusting in the Lord That he's going to bring things about the way that he wants to do it. Well, let's go back. Then lastly, the five things we do if we're looking up to the Lord. In verse eight, it says refrain from anger or cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. Isn't that interesting? Do we ever connect worry with anger? As you look in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, worry and anger often go together. Do you realize that biblically speaking, worry is a form of anger? Worry is a disappointment. Worry is a concern because things aren't just as I would want them to be. I find that connection interesting in the scriptures. 
Refrain from anger. I think the psalmist is saying primarily refrain from anger against God, but also refrain from anger against others. Sometimes we get angry at those who are prospering more than we are. We get angry because uh, at someone because we think things are going better for them than for us and that we deserve something that we don't have and they have it. You know, who are they? You know, in the in the ladder, in my mind, I'm way up here, Lord, and this person's down here. And yet, look, you know, he gets to drive around in a brand new Audi and I'm driving a Kia Soul. So, I mean, something's not right, Lord. I think that's a perfect car for a pastor, by the way, the soul. I think that's good. (laughs) Refraining from anger and wrath. When I'm experiencing these types of situations, as the psalmist points out, and as First Thessalonians 3.11 points out. It is a mark of a godly person that he or she is able to maintain a settled, calm frame of mind because he is trusting the Lord. And I know I can see the looks on your faces. You're like, there ain't no way I can do that. And I want to say to you, you're absolutely right. You cannot. But with God, all things are possible. It takes work. It takes practice. It's called sanctification. It's a process. It's learning. Each difficult situation we go through, hopefully we improve in our response each time. So we look up and then to close out the psalm. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And then really we also read verses 34 through uh, 40 because it's saying pretty much the same thing. So we look up, but we also look ahead. The psalmist is saying, take the long view of things. Look at things the way God looks at things. We're such earthbound creatures. We're so tied to the present. It's hard for us to have a big picture view of things, isn't it? All we know is what we're dealing with today and what's consuming me today and what's worrying me today. But as we read through Psalm 37 and all of the scripture, God tells us to take a long view of things. And as we look ahead, what will we see? We see that those who do evil only flourish for a short time and then they will be thrown down. In other words, the psalmist says the wicked are here today and gone tomorrow. But the righteous people of God are preserved in the present and then, please catch this, rewarded in the future. We have to practice Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. What does Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 say? I don't even know if I know it all. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 6, I don't remember. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, I'm the man in charge. I have to. I was a little rusty on verse six there. So. (laughs) It's hard for us to take the long view because we're trusting in our own ways. We're not trusting in God's ways. God has plans. God has purposes. God's operating an entire universe Or two or three or four or who knows. But because we're so earthbound, we get stuck on only me, only right now. And we forget. We're not going to go there. But sometime you should read about Moses in Numbers chapter 12. 
Moses was wronged by his brother and sister. And what were their names? Aaron and Miriam. And they were grumbling and complaining against his leadership. And it's interesting. I found something fascinating. I was sharing it with uh, someone before church. It says that his sister was really angry at Moses because he married an Ethiopian woman. Uh, That has a lot of current application in our culture today. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail. That's interesting because the Ethiopians are black. So it almost sounds like perhaps that his sister was prejudiced and got angry at him. I have to dig into that some more, but I thought that was really interesting. But they were grumbling against his leadership in Numbers 12. In verse 3 is so interesting because the scriptures say that Moses was more meek than any man on the earth at that time. So they're maligning his wife. They're maligning his character. They're undermining his leadership. And his response through the whole thing is a gentle, quiet, self-controlled frame of mind because he was trusting in the Lord. What a tremendous example of the meekness that we need. And we say, well, I can't do that. That's not my nature to be meek. And we're right. It's not. None of us by nature is meek. But as Christians, we can learn to be meek just like Jesus. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. So they're weary, they're heavy laden, they're worried, they're fretting, they're anxious. Come to me, he says, I'll give you rest. Take my, and that's the key word there, that's emphatic. Take my yoke upon you. Get rid of your own yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and meek in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look at the application questions. When was the last time your plans or goals were hindered? How should you respond then based upon the scriptures that we've heard today? And what are some ways that we can put off fretting and put on delighting in the Lord instead? How can we be like Paul? How can we be like Moses? How can we be like the psalmist? We have plans. We have goals. We want to obey the Lord. We're doing the best we can. We know that he approves of what we're trying to do because we're following his word. And yet at every turn, there's obstacles, there's hindrances. There may even be wicked people. Uh, You can bet that Satan is trying to hinder any work that's being done here for the Lord. So how do we keep from getting discouraged? How do we keep from just giving up? Well, remember what Alva J. McLean said, the presence of hindrances does not mean that our purposes are not approved by God. So we have to look up to the Lord and we have to take the long view of things. That God is in control, that Christ is in control. And accomplishing the will of the triune God perfectly in all things. No need to be discouraged. No need to fret. No need to worry. We delight ourselves in the Lord. We wait patiently. We continue to actively serve him as we wait. Then, because the Holy Spirit has given us self-control, Galatians chapter 5, we apply that self-control to calm our minds, 
to settle our thinking, especially during those times where we feel like we're being frustrated, we're being hindered. There are obstacles to what we know God has asked us to do. Let's stand together. Let's have a closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray uh, that every person here was as encouraged as I was this week as I was studying this. uh, Because I can tend to worry. I can tend to fret, especially about ministry things, especially about people's souls, especially about finances and about the future. And I look around at the world and I look around at our country and just all the yucky, gross stuff going on. And then I learned that I shouldn't be focusing my attention on all those things. I should be delighting myself in my Lord and in my God. And I should use the self-control that your Holy Spirit has given me to calm my mind, to cool my thinking, to not get heated up, not get all worked up, but to continue to just wait and to actively serve you as I wait. So, Father, I pray you would use these scriptures, use these words to work in all of our hearts this week. Father, teach us to choose not to worry. Help us to choose not to fret or be anxious. Help us to choose to delight in you, to trust in you, to commit our way to you. Help us to choose not to respond in anger when our plans are frustrated. Help us to look up. Help us to look ahead. And Father, I know this will cause our hearts to just soar, just to soar in delight uh, as we fix our hearts and our minds upon you and your goodness and your mercy and your love. So, Father, help us work through difficult situations we may be in as a church, uh, also personally in our homes and our relationships. Father, help us to maintain that meekness, that coolness, that opposite of losing self-control as we just wait and we trust you to do what you want to do. Thank you for this day. As already was prayed earlier, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for those, Father, that have given their lives so that we might have the freedom to even come and worship together. Uh, May we never forget. May we always honor those that have paid the ultimate price. So, Father, we leave here rejoicing with gladness, full of joy. And we give you all the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Hope you have a wonderful holiday tomorrow.